Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Dan Conrad, the federal CTO at One Identity, and we discuss the growing need for identity verification in a remote working environment, the security culture differences between the public and private sectors, and steps you can personally take to make your online presence more secure. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hello, Joel. How are you doing? Fantastic. How are you, Dan? I am good. Where are you calling in from today? I am just the north side of Indianapolis. Ooh, what's the what's the whole COVID lockdown situation like there? Well, we're not in a great situation, so it's not a lot of lockdown, but there is quite a bit of COVID going on. So I think maybe you know we'll have to take a few steps back into uh, a deeper lockdown. Well, luckily you have a guitar there in the background so you can play while you're locked oh. inside. <laughs> I, only, I only use that ironically or for sarcastic notes where I need to bend a string and roll my eyes, you know. So, <laughs> so you, don't, you don't play like regularly? No, no, I'm just to mess around with. And, you know, if I'm on a call or something and I can sit in the background muted, I, you know, walk through some chords and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's a, uh, it's, it's a nice distraction at the same time. It keeps you engaged. So did you want to be like a rock star as a kid? Not as a kid, maybe as an adult, you know, <laughs> so the, the deeper you get towards, uh, you know, the life that you've chosen, you're like, well, maybe I could do something a little bit bigger. But. Yeah. I've seen a lot of actors do that. They'll have right. good acting careers and then they'll end up going and doing a band like I think what was the name steve martin he's got like a really good band yeah i think uh, was it dennis quaid and i've seen him play some venues you know so interesting well maybe there's maybe there's a future for you for that maybe hey, yeah this opportunity being locked inside you just brush up on and then you end up starting like a 70s tribute band yeah, because I have that brand recognition already, right? So, you do. Well, I'll, I'll, you know, write a bunch of songs specifically about identity and authentication. I think that'll be, that'll be a big hit. <laughs> you know what that reminded me of? Okay, so did you see the old like Microsoft product launch videos where like Bill Gates would dance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really strikes home with the the user base there, right? So. Oh yeah. Yeah, IT security based poetry or something like that. I don't know. Maybe that would work. So other than music, like when you were young, like how did you get into technology? Accidentally or, yeah, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer of you let your career find you. I was in the military for 20 years and migrated into technology because, you know, everything from me, I was the Nick Burns. Do you remember Nick Burns from Saturday Night Live? The, yeah, of course. You know, the, the office IT guy. You, know, you want me to save that version of Minesweeper for you before <laughs> I reboot your computer? To uh, you know, moved on up to the enterprise level, and it, you know it was strictly by accident, and it just worked out. So, so that was just like that's like a brief story. What was like your first tech job? Yeah, you're gonna find out exactly how old I am. So, I mean, the the day I entered my first duty station in the military was in 1984. And they dropped a Zenith Z100 on my desk and said, we don't know what this is, but we're supposed to figure out how to use it. And it was the first Air Force standalone computer system with, um, you know, I had the nice one because it had the 10 meg floppy drive or the 10 meg hard drive in it. And, um, you know, first thing you do is you format the hard drive and it took an hour and a half and you had to move a jumper on the motherboard to do it. So, and then it was off from there. We did everything from you know, basic office functions to moving data around our organization, which was a squadron. And, you know, we did a lot of amusing things that were probably easier to be done without a computer, but we insisted on using the computers to do a lot of that kind of stuff. And it turned into things that were actually much easier, better information flow. It's just so amazing to think like you had a 10 meg hard drive and most of the photos we take today are larger than that. Well, I mean, you think about the bandwidth that you just pump through and, you know, I need a hundred megabits per second to be able to have a video call. So that's 10 of those hard drives every second. I know. So. We just got a new studio too. This is actually the first episode with the, with all the components of the studio, like coming together. So like new HD cam. So we're still working on the lighting and all of that, but nice. uh, we just figured, 
you know, the show got big enough and we were like, let's just take this Amazon principle of day one. We started using it in other aspects of our business. Mm-hmm. And then we said, okay, well, like, let's make a list of every routine that happens at the company and then just go day one on them constantly. Just go in this iterative loop of just constantly improving the basic things that drive revenue and bring value to the customers. And we got around to the studio. And so that was like our project for this past couple of weeks. Nice. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting mentality when you can do that. It's, a lot of companies really don't aren't in positions to do that sort of thing to make those kinds of major changes. And if you've got anytime you've got a chance to make a fresh start, it's always a good thing. You know, it's the same concept of never miss an opportunity to reload an operating system, right? Just <laughs> start from scratch every time you can. So. so yesterday, and I think you'll be like uniquely positioned to to talk about this with me. But uh, yesterday, I was talking with Raphael. Uh, and he is uh, like a filmmaker and he created this documentary called Cyborgs Among Us, talking about how people were implanting you know, different technologies. There's like an underground movement, mm-hmm. there's people in Sweden doing it, there's people in the US doing it. But then there's also the like, commercialization for you know people with Parkinson's, getting brain implants, oh, and right. artificial limbs for people who've lost limbs. <clears throat> and so that brought up this question where I was thinking like, with identity, what's going to happen when like bionic eyes exist and you can, you know, change your retinas or clone retinas or your hands can be changed? Like where are we at with like identity and security and where are we at today? And then like, where are we headed? The first thing that comes to mind is, you know, we're going to have to change a lot of the CAPTCHA screens that says, are you a robot? Like I'm not, if I were a robot, would I know it? Or you might have to change it to say, I'm mostly not a robot. At, at this point, you know, there's a lot of that, you know, we think of things like the non-person entities. And, you know, of course, with my company, we deal with a lot of authentication and identity security. But there's more to it than just people. There's systems and authentication between systems. And, you know, the way that things have been breached throughout the last 20 years have always been maybe breach a person, but at the same time, you can breach a system in the same way. And the person, the system will act like a person sometimes. So with that, I mean, I think things are going to be changing quite a bit in regards to things like robotic process automation. Um, That may be the next target. You know, SCADA systems are always a thing, but then when you integrate robotic process automation into SCADA, that decision-making process changes. Hopefully the the robots are making the right decisions or the decisions that you've taught them to, to make. So, I mean, it's going to change quite a bit. I can see where the systems that are maintained in a human body are going to be an entire, maybe multiple career paths for people to learn how to do because it's just going to be so different than anything that we're used to doing now. And so what's your primary line of business? Like what creates sales for one identity? Um, you, you hate to say that problems create sales, but I mean, they we're do. Here to solve That's problems. what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all looking for the next big breach that we can, you know, jump on the bandwagon for. But in reality, we're about identity security. You know, we think back to the way we were building firewalls and things like that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And that was our security perimeter. I, I think of, you know, military installations where I worked and we had the most robust firewalls. And it was a lot of emphasis put on the firewalls. That was because most of our work and all of our identities and all of the, you know, the subjects and the the resources were inside that perimeter. So that's where we protected it. But now nobody works that way anymore. I mean, you think the Quest is, or One Identity is a Quest company. And when I came on the Quest in 2007, I didn't go into an office for three years. You know, everybody worked remotely. And so we protected our identities that way. My mentality was that a lot of companies were capable of doing this when in reality, a small percentage actually did that. So we were enabled, but at the same time, we were enabled securely. And I think that will be the new modern workforce that one identity is out to protect. So what did you notice? Like when you were talking, I brought up this thought that like the culture. So my dad was in the Air Force, so I got raised by by him and very disciplined, very structured. It's a very different world very disciplined but in an air-conditioned environment yeah. <laughs> compared to my, my marine corps co-workers right and <laughs> but i was curious to know the culture right so when it comes to security i mean 
I don't think there's a huge lack of technology. I mean, there may be, but I think there's definitely a lack of like discipline in the, you know, companies implementing the processes and sticking Uh with them. And did you find that it was easier in the military culture to have security and process and procedures than it is with, within these, like the public sector companies? Well, you know, if you're talking about from a technology perspective, yes and no. I mean, the tech, I, you know, I retired in 2004. So the technology had come a certain to a certain place there. I mean, you know, we had Active Directory in Windows 2000 and that sort of thing. Um, and security of those type systems was didn't have as much visibility as it would today. Maybe because there weren't as many breaches, maybe because it was just happening under the covers and nobody noticed that sort of thing. But, um, and, and again, that varies organization by organization, but I think in general, there was more of a utilitarian focus on security, like, uh, you know, a lack of, you know, let's put out a policy and we abide by that policy and very few exceptions to that. So if there were exceptions, you know, there were processes to examine your network and then write up, we call them poems, process something about, it's basically an exception process, where if you, if there was something was recommended or determined that it had to be done, you had to justify in detail why you weren't going to do that, and that was only on a temporary basis. So you had, to, you had that limited capability to deviate, but you had to have a plan to get away from it and actually abide by the directive, at, at the cost of user experience and things like that. What other differences did you notice going from like the military, Air Force into, you know, the sector? I made a gradual transition. So I, when I retired, I went to work as a government contractor. So doing active directing exchange migrations for the Army. And um, contract life was obviously a different work life. But from a security perspective, we had a lot more capabilities and able to implement things much quicker than I had in my previous government experience. And then when I moved to over to, you know, I was a pre-sales engineer for Quest and One Identity. That was a commercial company for me, which was a completely different lifestyle, a completely different, um, you know, the way you work is different. The way you interact is different. The motivations of people are different, that sort of thing. So within the military, you're in a situation where you've got a job to do, you get the job done, and then you take the day off or, you know, whatever it is you're going to do. There's not a monetary goal towards that. There's not a, you know, keeping the business alive. There's not really meeting needs of customers in that scenario, other than, you know, you being your own customer. What advice would you give to people that are like transitioning from military into companies? Like what's like, what, obviously there's a lot I'm sure, but what's like the one, one or two blaring things that just repeat themselves? I, I've been through this with several folks. In fact, when I retired from military and went to work, I reached back in to hire a few people that were coming out. And uh, there's a mentality when you're getting out that you're making another commitment, you know, another 20 year, a four year commitment to another company. It doesn't really work that way. You know, we've all worked in the commercial world where you've had people accept positions and not show up on day one. Like, well, I guess they got another job. So, I mean, just kind of keep your options open and don't don't rule anything out. And, you know, you can commit, but it's not really the same commitment that you're used to in the military where you're going to be, you know, have all your stuff shipped, packed up and you're going to end up in some overseas location for four years. And then how did you get from sales engineer to executive at the company? Uh, you know, I'm sort of a low, I wouldn't really call myself an executive. I've spent a lot of time in the pre-sales. So I made my way through pre-sales and I was the federal CTO. So I spent, again, another sort of phase transition into commercial life. When I went to work for Quest and One Identity, I strictly worked with federal and public sector customers because I held a security clearance and I spoke the language and I could decode acronyms at the drop of a hat, you know, and uh, could make up acronyms at the drop of a hat and move forward. But um, up until probably, and I did that till probably about two years ago. And I was, I became the federal CTO on the, on the quest public sector or federal side of the business. So that transition really was kind of seamless. And then when I came over to commercial side, um, I'm what's called a field strategist. So I get to work with strictly from the, the one identity portfolio of products. I get to work with the customers that have the most specific problems. I get to explore new solutions. I get to look at, you know, other types of technology and take those back to the company with recommendations. So, it's, you know, call myself an executive. I don't know about that, but um, I do have influence on the executive staff. That's interesting. So your primary like responsibilities are like researching emerging technologies, bringing back useful insights. That and talking specifically with customers. I share a team 
with, um, we also do customer advocacy. So we take some of our highest level customers that use the most creative solutions to do things. And we, you know, kind of come back and say, this is what solutions need to do looking forward. We look at the markets, we look at the researchers, we look at you know, Forrester, Gartner, Coppinger, Cole, all of those, and figure out where we want to go and what problems we want to solve, what the market's going to be like in five years, two years, 20 years. Do you then take those insights and actually, like how far do they go? Do you just gather them and do the research or do you actually begin to like test and, and figure out like which of the three paths are going to have like a nice return or gain traction? Kind of all of the above. So on my team, we're also responsible for technical integrations with other providers, you know, other IAM vendors or things that aren't necessarily IAM. And um, even within our own company, because Quest is a very large company with literally hundreds of products. So we look at, you know, like right now, I specifically work with our Microsoft platform management portfolio folks, and I figure out, are there solutions in that portfolio that strengthen the IAM message or the IAM solutions? Or, you know, I'm like right now I'm working on something in an active directory security area, like what solutions would work best for anyone large, running a large enterprise active directory? Would it be recovery? Would it be auditing? Would it be controlling of privileges? That sort of thing. So and we blend those together. Yeah. So it's a large company, hundreds of products. One identity is like a sub brand of Quest. Is is one identity a specific product or is it a suite of products? It's it's a branded business unit within Quest. So okay. with it, it is a suite of products. So things like identity governance, privilege access management, and then um, account management and things like Active Directory and the non-Windows environments as well. So do you have engineering teams that are making these products or are you just reselling? Yes. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Yeah, we we develop our own products or oh, we okay. acquire companies and then can continue to develop and merge those in. Oh, nice. Have you gotten to be a part of that process of finding and the M&A process? I, you know, we've made recommendations. My team has made recommendations. We'll see if any of those have come to fruition here, you know, anytime soon. Um, it's nice to be as part of a growing company. You either grow organically or you acquire and grow. And it's great to be a part of that and, and finding some kind of, you know, I really like the new technology that not just makes you think different, but eliminates something that you were doing completely and makes it irrelevant, you know? So I, I'm really a big fan of that type of technology. So we'll see where some of that goes in the future. So who runs the, like who's in charge or like the CEO of the One Identity business unit? The One Identity business unit is a guy named um, Daryl Wong. So he's, uh, it, it's an interim position right now, but he's uh, running the whole you know, product, all the product set, as well as the marketing that goes with that. Okay, cool. And so, so like One Identity has its own sales staff, its own product engineers. It's like its own branded business within yes. Quest. Yes. And then Daryl then reports up. And so Quest has like multiple different branded business units or is it? Right. We have Quest? three. We have three. Okay. We've gone from five to three right now and merged a few together. So the, you know, the two I work with, of course, is One Identity and then the Microsoft platform management, which does things like Active Directory Exchange migrations and on-prem Active Directory man management. And they've got an Active Directory security practice that'll do an analytics on your Active Directory, that sort of thing. Yeah, because that's like what you did for 20 years. You're an Active Directory expert. Well, yeah, expert is a, is a word I would choose not to use because I'll there's always it. somebody that's way better than I am, right? <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I came back from the on-prem Active Directory days of deploying it in 2000 to you know, things are sure a lot different now, but uh, you have to stay, you know, with that whole, you have to understand the whole process to end up where you are now. I think it would be very difficult to jump in right now. I think it's interesting though. You're, it sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds really cool. It's almost like, I guess the closest thing I've seen, it's like an office of the CTO. I typically see the offices of the CTOs will, will form when the CTO happens to like, just really want to think about the future or the technology. Um, or, you know, build services and try new things to help out mm -hmm. the company internally. But that whole process that you talked about, like research, and I was just trying to find a way to fit it into like my existing thought structures. Yeah. I, I mean, the group, the team that I'm on right now, there's, there's five of us on the, uh, we call it field strategist team. And then there's five on the customer advocacy and we work closely together with our own specialties. So there's you know three of me in the U.S. and you know the other two guys are really good in the identity governance space. 
and then got a privileged account ma management expert in EMEA. And then we've got a guy in uh, France that does a lot of things in the identity governance space as well. But they're just kind of uh, people that can, you know, talk really well to customers. They can talk really well on, you know, they can write articles, they can provide opinions and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a very diverse, but kind of a flexible group that does a lot of different things. Do you guys ever have like war games internally within the company where like you, your team tries to hack like your peers team or anything fun like that? Yeah, I don't think our internal IS would appreciate us <laughs> doing that. <laughs> you know, you know, you just release Metasploit on the network. I don't think we really <laughs> want that. So, oh, uh, I have a question. I'm some, I'm somewhat excited and reluctant to ask. So, depending on how it goes, we can <laughs> keep it or not. <laughs> but purely from a data perspective, right? Who is better at stealing identity, Russians or Chinese? Mm. Well. I it's, that's a tough question to answer because if you're really good at stealing data, you've never been caught. So that's I, true. Who knows? That's it true. Could be, it could be me. Probably not. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, that's the thing we really just don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So, I mean, when at getting caught, you know, different organizations get caught different ways, but we really, and, and how do you determine good at stealing data? Like the quality of the data, the bulk of the data, I don't know. Ooh, that's good. But we've thought about, yeah. you've thought about this a little bit, right? Is it the quality? Is it the size? Yeah, that, quantity that, over quality. Yeah, yeah. that's important. We I should... just stole two terabytes of, you know, cat images. social security numbers <laughs> that don't have names next to them. I, yeah, 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 two terabytes of cat photos. Congratulations. <laughs> well, you could have had those for free. We weren't hiding those from anybody. Well, I have my private repo of cat photos. Yeah. <laughs> Locked down pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, just as the honeypot, right? So, you know, people are after that. <laughs> oh, man, that's so far from me. I'm, I'm a dog person, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've said it before, like, dogs are the best people, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting on uh, the next thing we're getting is the shot's going to widen up and we have a bookcase type thing that'll come here. So it'll have some books in to add color to the shot. But then also like I can put the pictures of like my family and my dogs and all that good uh, stuff. Yeah. 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 You know, whenever you, whenever you see a Zoom meeting now, you always look to see what books are in the background. That's the new thing, right? The subliminal messaging in the books. Yeah, it's important. There's there's yeah. no books in your background, but there's music. And so that's... No, they're, they're, they're a little higher. You know, oh, I see my, them now. My future, my future crimes and I've got my... What a, oh, uh, Seth MacFarlane, A Million Ways to Die in the West book. Oh, Seth MacFarlane's an amazing individual. Yeah, he's very dynamic. And yeah, is that is that Red Stapler like homage to Office Space? It absolutely is. I mean, the Red <laughs> Stapler didn't exist until Office Space came out, the Red Swing one. That's right. amazing. So, yeah, speaking of like everyone being inside and looking at their backgrounds, have you noticed in the business trends or, or sales trends has, or maybe just customer requests, has this move to remote like sparked an increase in identity and identity verification? Like, has it impacted your business positively? It's impacted our business because we've become very concerned. I mean, I personally have become concerned with, you know, things like if you're sending all your employees home tomorrow, that's a difficult thing to do. But if you send them, if you had a new business plan where everybody was going to work remotely, we're going to take six months to execute this securely. Okay, that's that's interesting, and we get it. I mean, we know all the steps that we're going to have to take. But you know, when when I assumed that everybody could work the way Quest and One Identity did, I was I found out quickly, pretty quickly, I found out I was wrong. I talked to a few customers, and you know, one of them said we don't have laptops, so we told all of our users to make an appointment to come into the office. They would only allow maybe two people in the office at a time. Pick up your desktop, put it in your chair. And take all of it home. And then when you get home, call back to the help desk and we're going to set up an appointment for you to hook all that up and how to build a, how to VPN in and all of this stuff. I can't imagine the overhead to do that. So that kind of, those kind of knee jerk reactions were, we're all going to work remotely and securely. So I don't know that that's actually possible. So we, we became very concerned about things like, you know, how people are getting access to resources. Um, if you weren't positioned for cloud, you simply don't have access to a lot of the resources. If, are you going to give everybody VPN? Are they going to start using their own laptops because you didn't have them? Are they going to get access to your network via VPN that you just plugged into a laptop that you don't own? 
So you might as well just plug foreign machines into your network blatantly and see what happens. I, you know, a lot of those pieces didn't line up when you do things very quickly like that. So then that's like, as companies been reaching out to you asking for advice on what to do going remote? Yeah, not as much as we would, you know, of course, not as much as we would like, right? But companies have reached out. We've done some webinars. I've done some sessions on what it looks like, you know, the proper way to give someone like, uh, say, an admin with privileged credentials. You know, somebody just took a, you know, a domain admin account home with them, and now they're going to work from home. Because not only is your entire, you know, user base working from home, your admins are working from home and they send everybody home from home. So it's just this, you know, layer on top of layer that goes with this. So when we've got people carrying credentials home and accessing your network via, you know, whatever system we've seen breaches of RDP protocol or people posting RDP open on the internet to give their act, their admins access. Um, and then VPNs, VPNs with uh, default credentials on them, all of these things that go with that and all the layers that need to fit on top of things for you to actually do it in some version of secure, that it's, it's difficult to communicate to every customer a standard set of operating procedures for that because they've all got different needs and different capabilities. So you get to think of the future a lot, right? You even have the book, the future crimes book. I'm curious, like what, let's first talk about like today. So like today, what are some of the unique ways that you've seen in the marketplace that people are using to prove identity? So I just finished a, a comment this morning on the NIST the Zero Trust Framework. Are you? From, I don't know if you're familiar with the Zero Trust Framework. I'm familiar with NIST and their standard framework, but I don't so, know if it's the same. Yeah, Niche, NIST latched onto the term Zero Trust because it sounds really cool. It's got it a does. Z in it. You know, marketing yeah. likes it. If, if Zero Trust were true, then we would just Zero Trust is anonymous, right? So, but what it really is, it's a authenticate every connection kind of terminology. Um, it looks a lot like access based or attribute based access control with policy enforcement points and policy decision points. Um, but what they're really getting at is with the new architecture of identity being the new perimeter is we need to authenticate people in different ways. And that can be username, password, but username, password based on time of day, location, any anything about the person or the connection or the system that you're coming from can be part of that decision process. So that's going to be, in the, probably in the next three or four years, I would say that's going to be something that's going to change significantly in regards to continuous authentication. So, you know, once you establish a session and walk through the front door of your house with the key, that doesn't mean you get access to every dresser drawer and every pair of socks in the dresser drawer. So we need to kind of bring that back and get a little bit more granular with that. Like, sure, come in the door, but who are you again? And where are you coming from? And what do you need right now? So that that's going to change significantly. And then in regards to things like uh, behavior analytics, I think it's going to change quite a bit. So we'll see a lot of uh, sessions that are controlled through behavior analytics or monitored or, you know, when we when we start to gather data, we'll learn what more what we can actually do with it. If you don't have the data, you can't use it in the future to make decisions. So if we start collecting data on analytics of the way users typically operate, we can develop things like typical profiles of a way a user works or an admin works, and even a risk profile of this is a very risky person based on the access that they could have, or a very risky identity because it has access to several things that could cripple, change, fix the environment. That's interesting. Yeah, like I like the analogy of the how you use the analogy of like walking in the front door in the house because it really allows like a lot of people to understand is a good analogy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's really all I know about that. So, and I've also seen, uh, like, I went to Colorado recently, and I noticed that all of these services I used they required additional authentication because I was in a new location. Right. And it's not like that's the first time I've seen it, but the big difference this year with traveling was it was just very, very obvious. Like it was in more of my services than ever before. Uh, and it was amazing how one of the things I liked and I like, you know, to give kudos to the industry as a whole is the way it was set up where I, I wasn't running into it, like in my town, when I go from my home to my office and it's very close and that's very, it, it only, you know, presented itself to me when I was like far outside of my normal routines. I thought right. that was pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, and to me and to us in this business, 
we don't see that as an inconvenience. We see that as a, a layer of security. I would hope that you know maybe we can ed educate the world that being prompted for credentials or an extra fingerprint swipe from time to time is a good thing. It's not you know here to cripple you or slow down the process, um, you know any of that kind of stuff. We ask a lot of our users, you know, things like, you know, you, I, we know you have 224 passwords. Don't use the same password twice. Don't write them down and they all need to be differently complex. Okay, that's not possible. So, you know, anything that we can do to add to that convenience, but add security at the same time is a good thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I started using a password manager seven or eight years ago and that just makes your life so much easier. I have spent soapbox time with family and friends on, like you use the same password for literally everything. Well, it's the only way I can remember it. Oh, you, you know, so let me explain this to you. You know, and I've, I've done commentary on some things like some simple breaches. You know, they asked me to comment on a, uh, a what was it, an Instagram breach. Usernames and passwords of Instagram. I'm like, well, I don't really care about that. I'm not a 14 year old girl. Well, wait a minute. People that use Instagram use the same passwords for their bank account because they can't remember more than one password, or they may modify it slightly, change a capital letter or something at the end. It's a, it's a difficult thing to tell people that you can't do that, and this is the problem with that. But I have 225 passwords. Password managers are the answer. Yeah, I I've always had complicated passwords because the first pass. My dad was an engineer, you know, so he was very. And like I said, he was Air Force, so he was very interested in security. So he would, he, he had like the big, thick wallet that looked like a Big Mac or something. Yeah. <laughs> Give him scoliosis. The George Costanza wallet. Yeah, the right? Costanza yeah. wallet. Yeah. And then he had, you know, essentially sticky notes with tiny little writing on them to remember all his passwords. And he kept them on him all the time. Right. Uh, and so. And they we, were encrypted, right? They were all encrypted. Encrypted sticky notes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they were just like random letters and numbers and symbols. And so when we, when I would log on to the internet, you know, to, through the dial up, I would have to remember this string of like long characters. And so what I did was I just took that string and then like appended stuff to it. And that's how I use my You gradually remember more and more. It's like remembering all the characters in Pi, right? You yeah. add more and more every day. Yeah. So I would like, so the first like 12 digits were completely random numbers, letters, capitalizations. And I remembered that, that like initial string. And then mm -hmm. I would just make a site specific password appended to that string. Yeah. And that worked out really well. And that was just for me, it's not that I'm special or unique. It's like, that's how I learned password making. And so it blew my mind when I got into high school and people started having passwords and I would see them written down. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's your password? It's password one, two, three. It's like, it <laughs> can't be your password. Yeah. 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 I actually keep the, I don't know if you're familiar with the RockU breach, but RockU was a social media app that linked like MySpace and Facebook and a couple of other things together. But that's that organization to to get into that you had to enter of course your facebook password in your myspace or whatever else they had in there and they were storing their entire password their entire database not their own password database but the, the passwords that they collected unencrypted and it was taken so i have the database on my desktop in a text format it's like a 15 meg text file and it's interesting you just open it up you know and take a look and start looking for a password that you might know and i bet it's in there so there's just so many passwords in there. Anything that you've used, like I've used keyboard patterns and they're in there. So Oh wow. Yeah. So and I and when you do uh when you do a like a, a try to break a hash, you can link back to that file and see if it's in there first and it usually is. So it works really well. Yeah, that's why the the password managers now are just they're beautiful mm -hmm. because they autofill for you, they sync across your devices. And then if someone compromise, if one network gets hacked, they don't. Yeah. It's one password. It's yeah. one password. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cut, cut, cut the arm off and move on. You know, the, the problem though, is when you take something like Active Directory and the way Active Directory uses passwords with NTLM and the hashing, you know, kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but you log on to like a Windows workstation and it, ha it, it stores the hash of your password to promote single sign-on in the registry. So, you know, if, if your Active Directory domain admin password is 256 characters long written in iambic pentameter, 
nobody cares what that is. They just want the hash. So they extract the hash. And, you know, what we do now in the PAM space, privilege access management, is every time you use a domain admin credential on a Windows box, you cycle it. So that's one of those things that makes the way you were doing it before irrelevant. So I don't care how long your password is. They were taking the hash anyway. So if I reach into Active Directory and change the password, and I've even done some work with a couple of our solutions where I integrated them. And what I'm able to do is the account that you're going to use doesn't have any permissions until I ask for it. So I go check out an account and then it only becomes a domain admin temporarily. When I check it back in, it changes the password, which cycles the hash, but it also removes the domain admin group membership and disables the account. So if someone were to get access to that hash, it just doesn't matter. So there's really nothing they can do with it. What's one of the craziest breaches that you've seen? Like craziest identity theft stories that you have? Well, I've done a session on, in in one of the sessions I do is on privilege access management and why it matters to me. So I've got the three bullets. At the time, I held a federal security clearance. So the OPM breach was key to me because they took a database that was called Equip, which had all of my personal information in it. And every one that I used as a reference as part of my clearance had their information in it as well. And that was through a pass the hash breach. And, you know, they got access to the database, you know, the database, I believe either the database was encrypted or it was on an encrypted drive. But when you come in with privileged credentials, you don't even know there's encryption there. It just doesn't matter. So they walked right around the encryption and took the database. As a result of that, you know, then there was a target breach in like 2012. That one didn't really affect me too much. You know, the credit card that I didn't really, didn't matter too much. But is after the OPM breach, they gave me Equifax credit monitoring. Okay, then Equifax was breached. So, you know, I mean, just that chain of events that goes on and on with that. Um, you see scenarios where the IRS has, has found, people have found ways to breach IRS tax returns on old people that have, you know, years ago, they can find a way to get their tax returns. And that gives them access to things like, or, or the health records that they've reached give them access to the IRS tax returns. And it's just this cycle that just goes on and on. So once you've had your identity breached and somebody knows every personal information, every bit of personal information about you, you're up a creek, you know? I mean, it just goes on and on from there. I do give credit though to Equifax because I think they like fired most of the people (laughs) before the breach, but I didn't talk to anyone before the breach, but I did get to talk to Bryson who came in as like their CTO after the breach. Mm -hmm. And then I did get, I think his name is Jamal. And then there's another, there's another woman over there too, but I follow these like three executives at Equifax and they are like crazy about security. They completely change the entire company culture from the ground up through like new executives and that's a good whole thing, new yeah. mission. And now they're, you know, looks like, you know, PR wise, they're positioning themselves as like, you know, a Titan of security, but you know, you know how you talk to people and sometimes you walk away and you're like, that person's ridiculously sharp. Yeah. Yeah. That Bryson guy, uh, I think it's Bryson Kohler's his last name. He is, is the head over at Equifax right now. And man, that guy is just sharp. Interesting. Yeah. yeah they, they needed something like that. Cause I mean, as a company, the reputation is key. And I think the damage that that did to their reputation was very, very difficult to overcome. So yeah, they're still working at it. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. you know, one piece of bad news, you need a thousand pieces of good news to, yeah. <laughs> to counteract really. that. Yeah, yeah, you do. And not just like little tidbits, it's gotta be, you know, really great strides to recover from that and not just like the security that you've invoked as a result of what you did wrong so and then the public sees it differently too so like you know the twitter breach the public's like okay well that's a social media account but like a credit reporting financial account is like much is much more serious to everyone oh so i'm curious to know i do you have do you have children yes okay so what are your thoughts having children and having the experience of having been a child? Uh, what do I you was th- never a child. I never a child? <laughs> I was born at the age of 34. Benjamin Button style. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on these kids that like did the Twitter hacks or just the kids that are hacking in general? Like, should they be going to prison for that? I don't know. Uh, that's, that's a good question. You know, there's a, I would like to get to know them and understand what makes them tick, you know, cause there's a inquisitiveness there of somebody hand you something and I need to take it apart and figure out how it works. How do you teach that? And should we 
should we criminalize that, you know, that need for knowledge? But then maybe there's an ethics side of it as well that, that they just were missed out on, that they need to learn what they should and shouldn't do with that. So I, I don't know. I don't think we should criminalize it. Should we capitalize on it maybe? Yeah. You know, you look, other countries are doing great things in the area of cybersecurity, but teaching people to do things the right way, maybe. We've heard a lot of different countries teaching, you know, teaching their military things like cybersecurity defenses and secure development and technologies like that. But, and, you know, we can always say, oh, we've got to blame the developers. They got to develop it from a secure mentality. Well, that's not really the way it works. No, it's not how it works. You get curious people and they're curious. Like I, I was lucky, right? Because I got curious about engineering very young and software development. And around 12, 13, you know, I was, I had a, there was a downstairs computer and an upstairs computer and, and this, and my sisters used the downstairs one. So I took it upon myself to like learn how to do the hacking and, you know, playing around within my own networks and trying things. And if I couldn't hack, I'd go downstairs and <laughs> figure out well, like what's wrong. And just, just doing that, like curiosity, ripping apart the engine type concept, mm -hmm. but with technology. In a, in a harmless, in a harmless environment, right? A harmless environment. But then it's like, then you're just like, okay, well, does it work outside of my network? Like <laughs> now that I figured out how to do it, it, but you don't have the mental maturity at those at these younger ages i would argue even 18 you don't have the mental maturity yeah. to really understand things but you know i think what you said you alluded to almost maybe there's like a different type of punishment rather than throwing them in the county jail or like a federal prison maybe we take those kids and put them in some other type of program and then i also heavily agree with you that it's highly dependent on the demeanor the behavior and the personality of the individual themselves like some people right. you can just tell that they're up to no good and that is their like life story and so you know <laughs> well but even to look back i it, you know i thank a lot of people for not giving up on me when i did you know you know lack of ethics or whatever you call it but you know we all did stupid things when we were younger and yeah. that's what part of grow, growing and maturing and that's just you know a lack of maturity um you know what's the the catch me if you can guy you know now he teaches the fbi so, you know, he was young and saw what he could get away with and didn't really realize the repercussions for that. So, and who he was affecting. I mean, that's a big part of it. You know, when you're, when you're taking information, if you're stealing it from a company and then you're selling it to another country or organization to cause malicious, you know, whatever to happen to the people that you stole it from, you got to realize that, you know, what are you, what are you actually doing here? You're not just making money on the side. You're, you know, you're really hurting people. Yeah. And then it, it depends on age too, because as as you know 32 year old if i'm stealing from a company and selling to a government that's very different than like if i was 18 and maybe influenced by this circle of people who somehow begin mm -hmm. to influence me you just don't have the mental capacities at those ages to like you do have you have a greater understanding than when you're like 10 when you're 18 right. but you definitely don't have a mature decision making it's like an ai algorithm that's like half baked it's like, it can exactly. some things, but it's not good. Yeah. I mean, and the only way to, to teach that is through time and maturity, right? And maturity doesn't happen at the flick of a switch. You can't teach that sort of thing. No. And then it's even more counterintuitive because your entire path through it, you're always the most mature you've always been. And so you always feel like you're the most mature you've always been. And you always think you're the most capable and you, you actually are, you're just not as mature as you will become and, and so it's like a really interesting like i was almost the other night i was thinking some of the people that i interacted with when i was like 21 selling technology and everything like that i was like wow they were definitely mature enough to realize i was 21 and like let me have that flexibility of being a 21 year old in my behavior because mm -hmm. you know not like i did anything bad just you know jokes you make or things you say just things you do when you're young right that just you wouldn't do when you're older and have a better understanding of life yeah but i think you should never give up on that you should never make people wonder or get to a point where they're not really sure what you're going to say next right well that's the art of life right you have to you go through the stages of maturity but you still have to retain some of those like childlike excitement and quality you know i i love when i get to talk to executives or just people that are older 
farther along in their career than I am. And they're still excited and they're still passionate because mm-hmm. to me, that's the win. It's like they got through all of the junk that jades 80% of the people, but yet they still held on. And I, I think that's like a recurring trait of people who I consider uh, like subjectively yeah. Uh, successful. Yeah, truly, and truly excited, not you know, we want to say marketing excited, right? Where you're like, I'm really excited about, you want to say like, truly, let me show you something cool here. And let me, you know, sometimes let me tell you why this is cool or, you know, that kind of stuff. So we're always looking for people to do that as well. And we've got some great people that can get excited about our technology and, and kind of link some cool things together that you didn't think would work. And we've kind of found with this work from home that we're doing, you know, everybody's working from home now and we're getting different groups of collaborators together at weird times and weird scenarios and all of a sudden these ideas pop up and it's just an amazing process to see you know like i'd never thought about doing it that way i didn't realize it would be that easy oh they all use the same protocol let's do that so it's really interesting to see were you able to uh, make any progress with your with your soapboxing on getting your families to get like into the the one password or last pass type of things so the progress that i've made is that i take my father, all of his passwords, and I manage all of his accounts for him. So um, he's got a couple passwords that don't meet, that my password vault will tell me, yeah, that you shouldn't be using this password. But um, so I take care of his, but you know, honestly, the rest of the family, I don't think they get the message. Maybe I just kind of turn the, the world loose on them here. But as far as that goes, I, you know, I still like to keep reiterating and, it's, and I've done it. I know they think I get a little bit nuts on this, but you know, let me explain to you how dangerous this is. And, you know, even to the point of, you know, you're accessing your 401k from your phone. Let me see this second. So things like that, it just, you know, it baffles me. And at the same time, though, it's getting it's getting better because the other day I got an alert from Chrome that one of the passwords I used was compromised. But like I never to- enabled Chrome to do that. I never asked them to do it. I'm not upset about it. I'm mm-hmm. actually pretty excited. But it was really cool that it was baked in, and it's like, hey, this was detect this password that you're using was detected in one of the breaches. Yeah, that's actually a service, and we you know we have a user self service password reset tool. And one of the new features of that is we subscribe to that service for you. So when one of your users resets an Active Directory password, it bounces off that service and says, this is a pat- password that was used in a breach. You should choose something different or guess again, you know. Oh, so nice. And then, and then somebody has an exclamation point to the end of it. There we go. That's secure. So you guys focus on that Active Directory line of business. You don't have like a consumer competing tool to like LastPass or 1Password, right? No, no. I mean, we have... Uh, we've got a privilege access management, which is a, you know, a, a password vault, a session management appliance right now. Within that, we actually have a personal password vault. So the users of that appliance can actually vault corporate passwords and things like that. But it's not like LastPass or, you know, RoboForm or any of those. It's not designed. You could use it that way, but it doesn't inject credentials the way those solutions do. I feel better now because I'm talking about like how great these individual personal password managers are that I'm happy that you, you don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> for the yeah. consumer sales, right? Yeah, I, I tell people that, you know, our, our new password policy is that you have to have six forward characters and you have to have at least back eight, six backspaces in your password. So use all of the backspaces that you want to get your password right. So I, wait, I can't tell if you're be serious, like you could put a backspace in a password or wait, what do you mean no, by backspace? No, no, you can't. So I, that's why you're messing with my head here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it requires six forward characters and six backward characters, which means we take blank passwords. Oh my God, you just no. be up aid me. So <laughs> we were talking about this the other day uh, with my producer, like in the video games, whenever there was new people in there, would be like, oh yeah, it's a cheat code, hit B up A, and that like exits the game. And I'm like trying to follow you. I'm like, all right, six forward spaces. All right, six backspaces. Uh, yeah, it. You and then hit enter. You got and me. Then they, yeah. Click next. Hit yeah. enter. <laughs> you got me, my friend. <laughs> this is good. Oh, man. Mission accomplished. Yeah. So, do you usually commute into work or are you like mostly? No. Oh. No. I mean, I've, yeah. Like I said, I, I went three years without going into an office, but most of the, much of the company that are like me, you know, you live, live and work anywhere. So, pre corona, I spend, probably three and a half weeks a month traveling to customer sites and things like that. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
you know, that's, that's when you can be face to face, this is good stuff. You know, we can get a lot accomplished and it's probably more effective use of your time. It's very rewarding to, you know, meet people face to face and discuss problems in a, you know, a very give and take. We can sit in a conference room and you can see facial, you know, acceptance of your solutions or eyes rolling or things like that. So I don't know how many sessions I've done where I'm sure half the people were asleep, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, just getting, let's just get CPE credit and get out of here or something. So That's funny. That was actually like one of the first comments that or like first five-star reviews we ever got on the podcast. This individual said, I turned this podcast on to listen to something that would make me fall asleep at night. And he was like, warning, don't listen to this podcast at night. It'll keep you up. And I was like, that's exciting. Yeah, because he came in and it was going to be boring. And I was like, I'll take it with a five-star review, right? You could probably (laughs) play thunderstorms in the background or something. Thunderstorm, rain music, tropical forest. Can you hear it? Can you hear the thunderstorm (laughs) happening right now? Oh, no, I can't. Oh, good. Yeah, no, there was like two or three big cracks of lightning. I was was thinking to myself, we got to go listen to the recording after this to hear if if it came through or not. Yeah, I didn't hear it. Yeah, Florida in the summers, or at least I live like uh, in like a vacation town. It's like near Tampa, Florida, but like clockwork, two to three o'clock in summer afternoons, it's a rainstorm for an hour or two. Yeah. Yeah. Very refreshing. Yes. So, dude, we did it, my friend. We made a podcast. All right. How do you feel? Enjoyed it. Yeah, it's interesting. Really interesting format. You know, I... I do a few sessions and then a lot of the folks want to do a practice run. I don't do practice runs for anything because I think impromptu conversations are much more valuable for anybody listening. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you listen to a lot of podcasts and you can tell when they're not impromptu conversations. It's a memorized recorded. Well, think about it like this too. The you as a human going throughout your day, you are 99% of your entire experience is impromptu conversations. It's unnatural to listen, listen to like this scripted conversation between right. two people. Like it's different because when you have the context of like, this is a sitcom, which you can see sitcoms have become incredibly unpopular. Like they used to be the thing and now no one's watching sitcoms. Everyone's watching like cinematic because they want like the storylines, like the longer form storylines. So it's just, you know, paying attention to what humans like, like what I want to listen to. I don't want to listen to a scripted interview. Right. That's no fun. I I know you said it slices, Joel, but does it dice? Well, I'm glad you asked because our marketing team gave me these three points to talk about. (laughs) Step one, we've got the sharpest blades in the industry. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the ShamWow commercial, right? The ShamWow commercial. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate it. And then I look forward, we'll have you on again next year and we'll, catch up and maybe you'll uh, have some songs to play us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Smoke thank you on the water. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. See you guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.